Y dos. Y dos. Una. Y dos. Y dos. Hello and welcome to Cortez NYC Livestream, the podcast. This show broadcasts twice a week out of New York City. We are your hosts, Cortez NYC. En Tala de Puerto Rico. And on the show, we talk about art, creativity, city life. From a Latino perspective, I'm a visual artist. And I'm a singer. And this is episode 54. As always, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify, and on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. And don't forget, I have an online store, CortezNYC.BigCartel.com. I have posters, stickers, graffiti pins, original art, all kinds of stuff for you guys to log on, shop, and support an artist. And a big shout out to all our fans around the world. Thank you guys for tuning in and listening. And let's get started. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. F your wall. Great sound uh, <laughs> soundtrack. <laughs> F your wall. Sorry. <laughs> that's that's the name of this track. That's the name of this track. F your wall. Fuck your wall. Oh, by the way, guys, this um, the songs or background music that you're gonna be listening through this episode, um, you can find it on SoundCloud, right? Yeah, that's true. Go to SoundCloud. Cortez NYC on SoundCloud. You can find these tracks. And this and album is called The Caravan. The Caravan. And that's why on this episode we're gonna talk about the caravan. On the second section of the episode. There you go. There you go. Mm -hmm. So, for the beginning, for the art talk section, <laughs> I want to talk. I want to continue our our uh, museum museum tour. tour. Yeah, I want to continue our museum talk. I think uh, we're onto something good here. We should talk about museums. Yeah. Especially, um, I was thinking about it. Like maybe something that has that in my head is um, the fact that it's getting cold now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like museums, I actually enjoy museums on on cold days mm -hmm. more than more than the summer. I feel like the summer you want to go out and do things outdoors. Yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's an excuse to go indoors and be warm and have a good time because there's different type of types of museums, you know. So there's museums that are a little bit more interactive, but if you're into history and art, you can enjoy a museum that is full of classic pieces as well. True. Um, so, continuing in our museum tour, we're going to talk this time about the MoMA, mm -hmm. the Museum of Modern Art. Um, I would say probably, man, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to shout out the MoMA because, uh. um, I don't know, it's not, it's not my favorite, uh -huh. but now looking at it right now that i sat down and said let me search some information and and uh get into it yeah. i realized there are a lot of pieces of art that i grew to like mm -hmm. at the moment even though i've always bashed it and said ah, yeah. i hate it i hate it i think maybe it was just like one or two floors of those type that type of art that you hate <laughs> but i think they do have a great collection yeah Yeah, I mean, when I when I did the... On paper, yes, you can see all the names, the mm -hmm. famous artists and the famous pieces, and yes. And I feel like those are artists and pieces that will inspire your work. Yeah, I gotta admit it, yes. Yes. 
because it's, it's the Museum of Modern Art, so... Okay, fine. <laughs> All right, now, but um, now the MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, um, I've gone not as much as the Met, um, but I have gone, let's say, eight times in my life. And well, the, well, the, the Met, I've probably gone freaking 30 times. Yeah. Um, but the Museum of Modern Art, I've gone several times in my lifetime. Uh, there's, there's been an evolution recently that was uh, in the past, I think, 10 years or something, or mm -hmm. 15 years, there was uh, a renovation. Um, it is a museum that is several floors. It's Midtown. It's on 53rd Street. Yeah, it's near my job now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll give you guys some facts about it. It was established... The Museum of Modern Art was established in 1929, mm. 89 years ago, it says. Um, not as old as the Met, but still kind of old. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was going to be freaking 89 years old. Yeah. That's pretty old. Mm -hmm. That That's incredible. I, I thought it was going to be like from the 50s or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, I didn't yeah. think it was going to be that far back. Um so, like I said, the location, 53rd Street. Um, the MoMA has been important in developing and collecting modernist art and is often identified as one of the largest and most influential museums of modern art in the world. Wow. Um, MoMA's collection offers an overview of modern and contemporary art, including works of architecture, design, drawing, painting, sculpture, photo photography, prints, illustrated books, and artist books, film, and electronic media. Even theater. Yeah. <laughs> the MoMA library includes approximately 300,000 books what? and exhibition catalogs, over 1,000 uh, periodical titles, and over 40,000 files of ephemera about individual artists and groups, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> um, the history starts uh, the idea of the... The idea for the Museum of Modern Art was developed in 1929 primarily by Abby Aldrich Rockefeller, mm. um, wife of John D. Rockefeller and two of her friends. Uh, they became known variously as the Ladies, the Darling Ladies, and the Adamantine Ladies. I would love to be known as the Darling Ladies if I had all that money <laughs> and I could start a museum, right? You can I, call me whatever you want. I did the same Rockefellers as the ones that... Yeah. The, the Rockefeller Center. At one time, that family... Mm -hmm created all kinds of cultural mm, things so in, throughout the city that's also explains the location because it's near also rockefeller center yeah you know yeah. wow um so anyway they started this museum i'm gonna give you guys a quick rundown they started this museum <laughs> it was great it was amazing a lot of different things <laughs> it evolved it yeah. was wonderful marvelous. It, was, it was marvelous these girls were these ladies were amazing um it had some renovations and whatever. Um, on 53rd Street, it started there from the 1930s and 40s, mm -hmm. is what it describes. Um, because previous to that, they were renting spaces and doing different things in different places. Oh, so, so like, a, 19, like an exhibition that goes around. Okay. Yeah, so 1930s, 1940s is when they finally were at 53rd Street. Mm -hmm. um, they talk about... Uh, Picasso, they talk about a few different artists, they talk about an, an American Indian art exhibition that they had mm. that supposedly it was the first time they displayed uh, American Indian art in a certain way, in a certain light that changed the way people saw American Indian art. Wow. Um, also, 1958, there was a big fire. 
Mm-hmm. On the second floor, it destroyed a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, 1969, the center of controversy because of Vietnam. They had some art pieces that were controversial. Mm. Um, that's expected from a museum of modern art. Of course. I'm sure that made this museum stand out compared to the Met that probably exactly. never had any controversy. Exactly. Right? Because it was safe art. And more events. Um, maybe like being a more vocal museum. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um and then in 2011 mm. in 2011 moma acquired a building constructed and occupied by the american folk art museum on fifth on west 53rd street adjacent to the museum so they acquired mm. an, a second building okay um and they expanded mm-hmm. and then 1983 the museum more than doubled its gallery and increased curatorial department by 30 percent 1997 the museum undertook a major renovation and expansion designed by a japanese architect um and that was i guess this is the museum that we see now right um the museum was closed for two years in connection with the renovation and it moved its public facing operations to a temporary facility in queens long island City. yeah I'm, i'm sure you remember the thing in queens and then it reopened in 2004 and then uh then that's it and then the rest of it is history what we know now yeah mm-hmm. um and then just uh quickly here uh some of the some of the artists that are in there um henry matisse umberto Boccioni, um russo uh Gauguin, van gogh Paul Cezanne, Andy Warhol, Jackson Pollock, Pablo Picasso, Claude Monet, um, Francis Bacon. Uh, just a whole bunch of artists. Dali. Um, Dali is there. Dali's in there also. Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's enough about that. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Great museum. It's been around a long time. Uh, great history behind it. I didn't realize that it was a long, around for so long. Yeah. I think maybe I took it for granted. Um, the building is really nice. It's a work of art in itself. Yeah. Um, and now they have the outdoor section where sometimes like a, little, a little sculpture garden out there. Yeah. yeah. They they'll have exhibitions also in the in the outdoors. It's like a little balcony or so. Um, and it's really cool. Yeah. So going along with the way that I talked about the other museum, let's go through some of the pieces that I like from the museum. Uh, I'm not going to say these are my favorite, favorite pieces of all time, um, but I will say that they are interesting pieces, pieces that capture my attention, that whenever I think of this museum, I think of those pieces, and even in some cases, they're pieces that grew on me, Mm. that when I first saw them, I wasn't so attracted to it, but eventually, they just become part of new york and part of your experience and yeah. you just re- accept it and you're like all right that's just part of my environment mm-hmm. um so i'll start with my favorite one yeah and then we'll move on to the other ones my favorite one is persistence of memory by dali mm-hmm. um persistent persistence of memory uh was is a painting from 1931 by dali uh, one of his most recognizable works it was first shown 
in the Julian Levy Gallery in 1932. Since 1934, the painting has been a collection of museum. Oh, since 1934, the painting has been in the collection of MoMA. Wow. Since 1934. That's... It's been there and all it was, these years. And it was made in 1931, you said? Yeah. Wow. See, that's why they considered it a museum the museum modern art because at that time it was current things yeah that they were acquiring and I, I imagine it was like the exclusive place for any modern artists to exhibit I mean to, to be fair there's a lot of pieces that we probably don't know about yeah, yeah because yeah. they do have rotating exhibits Exhibit. of new, yeah, of yeah, new yeah. art and yeah. we probably don't realize that they're acquiring new pieces all the time yeah yeah no but from the beginning from that time yeah that's good to know yep um so the piece was received by the museum by a anonymous donor that's weird it was an mm -hmm. anonymous donor it is widely recognized and frequently referenced in popular culture and sometimes referred to by more descriptive though incorrect titles such as the melting clocks mm -hmm. the soft watches or yeah. the melting watches yeah but it's actually called the persistence of memory Mm -hmm. um, it's a surrealist piece of art. It's a very small piece, yeah. uh, oil on canvas. I remember that one of the things that stayed in my head was when I first saw it in person, mm -hmm. realizing how small it was. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of saw it in books over the years. And then when I finally went to MoMA and realized, oh, there it is. I had gone to MoMA and didn't even realize it was there. Yeah, yeah. That happened to me too. And yeah. And then when I finally, on one of the trips, I was like, oh, wow, that's a Dali piece. That's, oh, wow, that's that one. Mm -hmm. Uh, then I walked up to him and I realized how tiny it is. And I was like, wow, yeah. I imagine this being so much bigger. And I think it's because of the way he painted it. Mm -hmm. The way he painted the piece, it's a little landscape. And he put so much detail into it that it gives you the illusion that it's a large, very large piece. What stands out about this piece is the, I think it's the mood, it's the environment. Uh, the melting clocks obviously are, are iconic, but... I think it's the, to me, it's the space that is that's, painted. That's what I was going to say, because when you see the piece, it's almost like you're in a desert. Yeah. And it feels like you feel the dryness of time. And you feel like time is either not passing or it's being like consumed by the heat of the environment. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's something there. On, on the topic of the soft melting pocket watches, uh -huh. um... A description here says the soft watches are are an unconscious symbol of the relativity of space and time a surrealist meditation on the collapse of our notions of a fixed cosmic order hmm. that's pretty deep yeah. basically time time passing time is not real it's relative mm -hmm. uh so these soft or melting watches or these soft watches that are like little drape soft watches it's kind of taking away the power of time the yeah. time is not a rigid thing right time is a flexible thing right um but yeah i like this piece very nice piece salvador dali one of my favorite artists and i think the only thing that topped this was when i went to see dali's pieces in florida and mm. i saw the bigger pieces and then mm. i was like wow i got the big picture of mm -hmm. his more of his work um yeah i want to go to his museum yeah we gotta go but um but yeah i i think this is one of the pieces for the from the moma that i appreciate yeah Uh, I, I've used that word. I definitely appreciate that it's at the MoMA and mm -hmm. that it's at, you know, a, a couple of hours. In you your know, neighborhood. Yeah, in my neighborhood. An hour away, I can go right over there and check it out. That's a know. luxury. Yeah, that's a luxury. Um, all right, so that's that piece. The next one that I would speak of is one. This is one that grew on me. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is called The Sleeping Gypsy by Henry Russo or Russo. Uh, it's from 1897. Um, 
it's a very quiet piece, I want to say. Um, it's similar to Dali's piece in that it's a landscape that looks like a desert. And I think there might be a continuation of a theme mm-hmm. in there in my head, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, the Sleeping Gypsy is created by Henry Russo in 1897, which is a lot before Dali. Mm-hmm. With a mysterious poetry, the lion visits the gypsy woman and her mandolin in this masterful composition that somehow employs hard lines and flattish perspectives to great advantage. In The Sleeping Gypsy, Rousseau portrays an African gypsy in a desert wearing an oriental costume. She lies beside an Italian stringed instrument and a jar of water. These items each have significant importance to the cultures in which they belong. The oriental frog, the mandolin are customary to the respective Asian and Italian cultures. However, Rousseau decides to mix them all together in his own painting. Hmm. It's a cultural mixed bag of, of imagery. Yeah. Especially with the uh, African gypsy and the uh, the lion. And the lion. Um, I just like I like the mood. I like the fact that she's laying down sleeping. I like the fact that it's mysterious. You don't really know what's going on. It's a very it feels surreal. I don't I don't think it's under surrealism, but it feels surreal because you just feel like you're in a dream state mm-hmm. when you're looking at it. You yeah. feel like this is like a weird image. Like what's happening here? Um, I think the scale is pretty big. Also, it's it's a good size. Um, but I think the, the way that it's rendered is really nice. It's flat. Mm-hmm. It has a little bit of three-dimensionality, but it's, like, I would say, like a 2D slash 3D. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's got a slight rendering, but it's not trying to be realistic or, or dimensional. But yet, there's a sense of space. Um, the colors are nice. You know, the tonality of it, the earth tones and all that. I think this is one of the first pieces that I saw where I really felt color. Yeah. Um, in, not in a cartoon way, but in a in in, in a quote unquote fine art way. Mm-hmm. This is the first time that I saw like those earth tones, like those Arizona yeah. colors. And because it's not completely three D, the details of like texture and stuff like that, you get it because of the colors that he used. Yeah, yeah, this is very nice. It looks cultural. It looks like a cultural piece. I've seen mm-hmm. uh, Latin American paintings that look like this, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so maybe there's something to that also. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice piece. So the sleeping gypsy at the moment. All right, the next one I'm going to talk about, and I know I'm running through these, um, <laughs> but I'm just not. I'm not as. Uh, what? Because I, I don't. I don't. These pieces are not close to me. Ah, uh, okay, okay. So I'm, okay. I really have to read the facts on it because I really these pieces are odd to me. Yeah. They attract me. I memor. I memorize them. I kind of have them in my head, but yeah, I don't but know the details. That- yeah. You feel passionate about it. Exactly. So I have to really <laughs> read through it. And I'm learning right now as I'm reading through yeah. it. So. All right. So this next one, I would say definitely grew on me. When I first saw it, I had no interest. And now that I look at it, I appreciate it. And this one's called uh, Number 31 mm. by Jackson Pollock. Uh, it's from 1950. Um so Jackson Pollock, everybody knows who Jackson Pollock is. Everybody knows his style. He's the guy who does the splatter painting. He calls his technique uh, drip, drip art. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a style of painting where he laid down the canvas on the floor and he would, you know, drip paint and make all these splatters. And he would go in coats of different colors. So he would choose like, let's say, four colors and he would just overlay drips until they would start to create textures and patterns and things like that. Right. And rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very big painting. It's, it's, it's exciting to look at when I look at it now, especially that graffiti artists have taken on some of this kind of symbolism and, and the splatter technique. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I look at it now, I, I see where street artists have have 
been inspired by this. Yeah. Um, so it's got a little more of a connection or familiarity to me when I see it. Mm -hmm. So uh, quickly, I'll say Jackson Pollock was at the height of his career when he made one number 31, uh, 1950. One of three wall-sized paintings he produced in swift succession in the summer and fall of 1950. It is a field of densely interlaced threads of paint offset by pools and splashes of color. He began by laying canvas on the floor and pouring, dribbling, and flicking enamel paint onto its surface, sometimes straight from the can or with sticks, stiffened brushes. He would also convey paint convey paint onto his canvas by punching holes at the bottom of the paint cans mm. and squeezing it directly from the tubes and even using a turkey baster. Uh, baster. Mm. Although he was not the first to explore liquid enamels, Pollock harnessed their physical properties and more dramatically than ever before, his interest in the surrealist embrace of chance and accident, uh, which sparked his initial experiments with the effects of gravity and momentum and falling paint, led him to the style that would become synonymous with his name. He also drew from European artists who dripped paint in their work, including Hans Hoffmann and from, Navo uh, and from Navajo, sand painting. But as Pollock maintained focus, as, follows, as Pollock maintained, focus should be directed at the work of art itself. Technique is just a means of arriving at a statement, he once said. All right. Okay. So, um, what can I say? The piece is big. It's, <laughs> it's very simple in color. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's why when I first saw it, I wasn't attracted. I think when, as I got older and I became more sophisticated in seeing the use of color is when I could appreciate how he used these like, they're almost like camouflage colors because he's using like sand and green and black and white. He's using like the military colors, mm -hmm. which are kind of people associated with nature and all that. But I, when I see it, I see camouflage. Yeah. Um, and I think the motion, people get really, they're very, they romanticize the motion and the splatter and all that. Mm -hmm. But I just think that it he created some interesting um, line work. Um, I agree with what he, his last statement there. I just read it now. But I, yeah. I agree with that, that it's not really about the technique. It's about what's the statement. And I think when you see this painting and you see the, the, the webbing that he right. created, it's like this interwebbing of, of uh, paint. It's not that far removed from what you see when you see a tapestry on a wall mm -hmm. that is woven, mm -hmm. like w a woven uh, texture. Yeah. Um, and, and what he what he what he said is uh, related to graffiti because it's not about the style of art, but it's about what you want to say. True. With your art. Good point, Carla. Mm -hmm. All right, now. <laughs> running out of time but the last one uh the last one from the moment that i would say stays in my head um is a piece called christina's world by andrew wyeth uh 1948 this piece is interesting and it stays in my head because a lot of um cinematographers directors uh -huh. uh, i've heard them refer to this painting um People have imitated the look of this painting, the scenery yeah. of the woman in the... It's like a woman on a grass field. Like it's a burnt grass and it's like a, a, with a house in the distance on the right. horizon. Mm -hmm. Again, the horizons and the, mm -hmm. and the landscapes, right? I, I guess there's something there that, that was, stays in my head. Yeah. But um, this image has actually been uh, replicated in, in, in movies, like paid homage to mm. in movies. And I think that stays in my head that I guess the drama right. of the image. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and the colors, I think the colors are great. Um, all right, let's go quickly through the description. The woman crawling through the tawny grass was the artist's neighbor in Maine, who crippled by polio, I didn't know that, that's mm. crazy, was limited physically, but by no means spiritually. Wyatt further explained, the challenge to me was to do justice to her extraordinary conquest of life, which most people would consider hopeless. He recorded the arid landscape, rural house, and shacks with great detail, painting minute blades of grass, individual strands of hair, and nuances of light and shadow. In this style of painting known as magic realism, everyday scenes are imbued with poetic mystery. Magic realism. Remember, we talk about it. True. In another episode. True. So this one's Christina's World. Hmm. Andrew Wyeth. Um, Very interesting. Yeah, I think... Let me see if I could find real quick. Um, but so what do you think about this, Carla? Well, I think it's great. I wanted to tell you guys, if you guys are in New York visiting, or if you are from New York, MoMA has free um, admissions on Fridays from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. So go by, enjoy the museum for free on Fridays. Friday's evenings. So that's always great to know. There's a lot of um, museums that we're going to be talking about that they have that, um, you know, um, for you, that is free. <laughs> well, just look quickly. If you do a quick search, you'll find that um, Terrence Malick, he did some things that were inspired by some images He's a director and he did some images that were inspired by this painting. Mm. Um, they have a list of like 15 films that were inspired by this painting mm -hmm. but, and by different art pieces. But um, definitely this image I know is one that people have referred to and said, yeah, you know, that painting has inspired, you know, imagery. Yeah. Um, I think I'll say the last thing I'll say is the MoMA is not for everybody. A lot of people are you know, have a reservation to going and seeing it. They feel it's boring. They feel modern art is boring. I agree with them. A lot of modern art is boring, but I do appreciate it. And over the years, I think I've appreciated more. Um, so if you guys haven't checked it out, go check it out and uh, give it a chance. Keep trying to, it's an acquired taste. <laughs> no, culture talk. Culture talk. What, so, do we got? What do we got, Carla? On this culture talk, we're going to be talking about the migrant caravan that is coming up north. The horde of invaders that are invading. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. So, the rapists and killers and uh, what else? What are, what are they? The yeah. zombies. The zombies. Yeah, the yeah, zombies. Zombies that are coming with um, diseases. With polio and... And, uh, and polio and... Uh, ¿Cómo se the llamaba? The Black Plague and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Todo eso. Varicela. <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah so... Um, Like I said on the section before, we're going to be talking about the migrant caravan. Um, 
I'm gonna give you guys some facts please about do. it. Please and do, please do. Then we can maybe discuss what we have heard in the news and what is our view about it. Yeah, because I'm very scared and I just need to stop considering an invasion. So please teach yes, me. Exactly. Teach me what are these and people. They're, no, and they're right right here. Like They're going to be here in any, any minute. They're downstairs in the lobby. Yeah. They're trying to get up into the building. Mm-hmm. All right, exactly. so help me out. Please. So thousands of migrants from Central America say um, they are fleeing persecution, poverty, and violence in their home countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Okay. Uh, they're starting coming together uh, on October 12th when there was a group of around 160 people at a bus ter- terminal in Honduras. Okay. Uh, and then a former politician made the plan viral. Basically, he, he posted it on Facebook and more people got uh, together in that group. And that's when the group reached almost a thousand people. Um, and then when they were setting off, there was, like I said, a thousand Honduras that joined this caravan. Um, so the ones moving faster are a group of more or less 400 um, migrants that are mainly men and boys. Um, and they reach uh, the Mexico capital, Mexico City, on Sunday, November 4th. Mm. So on November 4th, they got to Mexico. Do you really think they were going to be here by November 8th, which was the idea that Donald Trump was trying to put out there? But obviously not. But they um, won't because they're too lazy, right? Exactly. Why don't they just pick up the speed? Start running. Some... <laughs> Some of the information I found, it says that um, in Honduras, there's an endemic, there's endemic problems with gun violence, drug wars, and corruption. And this is why the wider region has one of the highest murder rates in the world. That's crazy. So that's why our people are fleeing, because um, they fear for their life, they fear for their families. And sometimes there's no other escape. They just have to really just grab their, their things and go. Yeah. Like, why is it... I mean, it's not logical for someone to leave everything they know and go to a place where everything is unknown and you don't even know what the possibilities are. And, and you're, not, you're not coming... The misconception that these people are coming to invade is like mm-hmm. ridiculous. These people are not like gearing up uh, you know, training for a year, getting their, exactly. their their food together, their money together, getting their weapons together, getting it's uh, not a militia. No, mm. they're they're not they're not they're not uh, prepared for this. They're no. they're leaving running. Yeah, with whatever they can grab. <laughs> to, exactly. To, that they, you don't do that unless you're really running from something. Exactly. You know, people to, to assume other anything else is to assume these people are ri- ridiculous or that they that they have no brain. Or, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but this caravan is not the only one coming up north. There are several caravans. Um, the first and biggest one is the one that left San Pedro Sula, Honduras, in October 13. But two smaller ones have formed since. Wow. Uh, and the hot weather means that there's a lot of sunburn and dehydration. And this, this is a risk that they're taking. 
by trying to cross the borders because they have to cross borders from Guatemala to Mexico, then Mexico to United States to get here. And you know that that region in Mexico, it's all deserts. Yeah. So it's very hard. Um, and then a little bit of information in the asylum program that there is internationally and then in, in United States. Okay. It says that uh, there is a legal obligation to hear asylum claims from migrants who have arrived in the United States if they say they fear violence in their homes. Right. Those seeking asylum must be fleeing due to serious fear of persecution under international law. Uh, these are considered refugees. Um, even if they're coming illegally, right. they have to be heard. But, like, this is a law. I, I mean, I don't want to interrupt you, but mm -hmm. uh, I did hear some conversations about this. And there is this misconception that these people are trying to either sneak into this country yeah. or attack this country, yeah. right? attack the border. Yeah. They're not. They're just going to show up and ask for asylum. Yeah. They're going to show up and... and And talk to the people at the border and say, hey, I need asylum. Yeah. And I believe the problem is that the the um, the politicians that are, in, that are against this, mm -hmm. they they just want to deny them asylum. Yeah. So the but the, the other problem is that and I have it here. It says, but if seeking a better quality of life, they are not considered refugees and do not have the same protection. So let's say if someone comes within that group and they say, oh no, I'm just running running up here because I'm poor in right. my country. Right. They might not receive the same protection as if I'm running because well, uh, somebody can kill me. Totally understand that. Yeah. And, and we'll maybe talk a little more about that towards the end, but that goes into the thing of, okay, Whether you came here because you're a refugee or you came here because you're just looking for a better life, you still you have, have to be to processed. Be yeah. yeah, you have to be heard. You still have to be processed. You're a human being. You're and not attacking anybody. Yeah. And, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it more, but it's like that's where it gets no, we, can, we, we can, get frustrated there. We that's can start can. talking about it now because um, I was thinking about the situation and I was thinking about some documentaries that I've seen, some movies that I've seen that are based on... Um, these countries in Africa that are fighting each other and, and their genos, uh, genocide right. be happening on those areas. And I know that the UN has some teams that they help legally, they help with food, they help with some houses that are not stable, but at least they try to keep families together. Right. So I'm wondering what's happening with the UN and, and their view of you know, helping you humanity and and helping everybody to have their rights and, and to be heard. Uh, where are they? And why is it that they're not moving into, like, say, Mexico or let mo let's move into United States in the border? Right. Let's start um, getting some lawyers that speak Spanish because you know that that's going to be a problem. And let's, let's try to keep families together because more than being legal or illegal or being Republican or Democrat or all that shit, It's more like they're human beings, and and this is this these are human beings. So you cannot treat them as if it's a family of dogs and one dog got lost. You know, it's it's, it's humans. So th that's where when I read this information, I was like, well, if it's so obvious, it's an international law. Where is the international organizations in Trying this? To support uh, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. 
It's, yeah. it's just all weird to me. And if it's happening, why is it it's not being reported? I totally with you. I so so frustrated and so angry. Yeah. At the audacity of some of the statements. Yeah. Specifically and which is specifically at the president. Mm. Um where he was i remember when he said something about like he's sending the military he's, he's deploying the military and he's going to consider even if they throw rocks he's going to consider yeah. it a gun he's mm -hmm. consider it a weapon mm -hmm. and he's going to consider it an assault and and then he's he was i don't remember his exact phrasing but he was almost sanctioning shooting back yeah yeah that's what he said and that right there is just like So you want to kill them all? Oh, that's just What like that's just like the. Uh, we're living in crazy times where politicians don't even hide their intentions. No. They just say what they really want to say, huh? They just exactly. say like, so, I, yeah, just, yeah. I just want to shoot them. Give me any excuse. Basically, he was saying, give us give any excuse, excuse to shoot to them. Shoot them. Mm -hmm. Basically, I don't want to hear them. I just give me any excuse just to shoot them. And then. And I'm gonna line up, like a firing squad. I'm gonna line up my troops mm -hmm. along the border. For the purpose yeah. of confrontation. Yeah, yeah. Just like they did at uh, with the police, the militarized police, when Black Lives Matter did their protest mm -hmm. or did their, their not even protest because they were just walks or demonstrations. Yeah. yeah. And they would send over militarized police to, to create a confrontation. Yeah. With the intention to confront. Yeah. On the under the premise of we're just trying to keep the peace. Exactly. And that's exactly how they're handling the military. And I think I think that's where I don't think they would do that in other places. No. Is the part that gets so frustrating. I don't think that we would I don't think the United States would do that in other countries on other lines with interacting with other mm -hmm. people. Let's say if I, it was a border with Canada. <laughs> and you got a bunch of Canadians coming down the border. You you really are gonna be like, oh, I'm ready here with the fucking military, and I'm gonna shoot them all if yes. they throw rocks. It's yeah, like, there, huh? yeah, yeah. I don't believe you. It's all because no. But even even like you were just talking about, you know, Africa or you know other other continents or mm -hmm. other places where there are even even in in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even think in the Middle East we handle borders with that kind of like disregard no yeah for people i think, I think that that it, they're handled more carefully like yeah. i don't want to cause a, a, exactly. a situation yeah, yeah, yeah here it's like oh no we no we have some roaches no exactly we have roaches coming up how do we just get rid of them but I, i've heard that i didn't hear that i read um a headline on facebook from an article and it was saying that a veteran was saying that that's not true that the way that Donald Trump is trying to handle the situation is not the way that they will handle that kind of situation if they were in the war in the Middle East. That, like you just said, that they don't want to create a bigger problem because you don't know who is around and, and no, and, and you don't, you don't want to create you don't want to create a, a, a global situation yeah. where, where you act where you actually are creating and you're killing uh, innocent people and yeah. then that's gonna go everywhere everywhere they're gonna know what happened in let's say in, in that country in the Middle East. You know, we, we, we criticize other countries who have dictators who do things like this. Yeah. Who, who cleanse their borders. Right. And cleanse. You know what I mean? They have the 
uh, ethnic. They call it ethnic cleansing. That's what they want to do. That's what they want to do, and they want to do it. They wanted to do it quietly, and now they're doing it blatantly. Yeah. Out out loud. Yeah. But it's obvious what they want to do. They want to do some ethnic cleansing. They want to cleanse. You know, if they have them coming, they want to get them. They mm-hmm. they don't want they want they don't want them crossing borders, and they want to get them out of this country. Yeah, and they want to demonize them by saying, "Oh, <laughs> there's ISIS in the group. There's um, <laughs> people from the middle Middle East in yeah. the group." Um, they're coming uh, prepared, basically as if they're coming to war. Um, they're saying that there's people from MS-13 in the group, which, to be fair, I do think that they might be people might be. in that group that but- are coming with other intentions. But that's why we have tri- uh, trials and that's why we have investigations. We cannot just judge everybody with this with because of one small group but, of people but at the same time even even if you did have gang members mm-hmm. in the group mm-hmm. even if you had a gang member that that is fleeing yeah it might be a gang member that's fleeing but he's fleeing mm-hmm. he mu- probably doesn't want to be in a gang anymore yeah yeah like, you know what i mean like if it's you're still a human like, being yeah, no, yeah that's that's, that's what i'm that, saying like, it's like crazy mm-hmm. it's like it's like Oh, gang member? All right. No, that's it for life. Right. Anywhere you go, that's it. And right. it's like, well, it's just a gang, dude. Yeah. It's not like, you know, I don't know why they demonize them to the point where they're like, a, like it's a country. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's an, it's an entity that we're at war with. We're, they used to do the same thing to the Colombian cartel. Like, mm-hmm. Colombians, part of the cartel. Cartel, it's like its own entity. We're at war with drugs. Yeah. We have a war with drugs, and anybody who is even associated with any drugs or any Latin American countries or Colombia, drugs, drug dealers, and it's a war on them. But, but a war on who? Mm-hmm. And 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 I can be selling drugs for a month and then maybe stop. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or I could, or I can be in the drug game by association. Yeah. And then leave it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the people, I'm sure half the people in it don't want to be in it. Yeah. You know what I mean, and and it it when you have that extreme prejudice, like we're at war with something, mm-hmm. you don't allow people to change, mm-hmm. to to um to kind of change path, change course. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, it, it it's frustrating. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating, and and, and I can imagine if if we're frustrated just watching from a distance mm-hmm. i can't imagine what these people must be like and they're kind of they're gonna come up to a border with a clash of these like over militarized people ready to like yeah god knows what yeah and then you're gonna have for sure you're gonna have freaking uh sideline couch potato fucking militia showing up yeah yeah and that's what i that's the part that just it, it, you know just stops me from talking because I just I just have a, a real bad feeling that he's energizing people mm-hmm. on the border, mm-hmm. not military. That's what I was thinking to too. show up and to and, and to, shoot because they're shoot. gonna shoot. They're they're not gonna think about the, exactly. And they're the gonna say that, they're gonna say that they're, they're defending the border. Mm-hmm. That, they're, that they're American patriots. That's why he worded it that way. Yeah. That's why he called it the Patriot whatever the fuck yeah, campaign. Yeah. And that's why he worded it like, yeah, they throw rocks, shoot. Because he wanted to open up that that imagination to the people. Yeah. To let them know, yeah, it's okay to go and do that. Yeah. And that's where I feel like it, it, he 
he's he's setting up such a, there's so many different ways he could have handled this yeah so many different ways to handle this it's just and 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 the worst part that i think this is, the, this is one of those episodes where i just can't even finish a sentence i know because i'm trying to say something and i'm like i i, I, I don't have the words that. i want to hit something <laughs> i don't yeah. have the words for this <laughs> the worst part about it is that they uh, so i watch a, a debate between sank from the young turks and a republican commentator from fox news or I don't remember his name, but um, they were talking about the caravan and the Republican was saying that why is it that we are accepting people basically that are poor and that that's <laughs> it, it, basically what he was saying is, well, if we are bringing people that are poor, that's making us even more poor because we have to give them too, and then you create some states that they're not rich enough because then we have this poor population in here and and i was like i cannot believe that you just said that like just bland like that like oh why don't we have people coming in that up uh, that give something to to the united states you know and that they come in legally and i'm like loco but I understand that United States doesn't have to help every single poor person or poor country in the world, but you do have to agree that the United States take, takes advantage of a lot of these poor countries. Well, well, they were there's I don't know that I don't know I don't have facts here in front of me, and I'm not going to research all this because it's a lot. But it, I've heard plenty of commentators explaining that this is uh, a problem created by the United, by the United States. States. Because on this hemisphere, in the Americas, the United States has created the most instability amongst Latin American countries, yeah. especially Central America. So it shouldn't be a surprise that it's everybody surprise. is coming here. It's not a surprise. Because that if you go over there and you finance a person that is going to take all the money for their um, their ideal, their ideas, and they're not going to you know at mini they're not gonna manage um politics and the economy of the country correctly then you should know that at the end you're gonna have these people going into your country and and if and if, if you go to another country and you plant flags mm -hmm. and you show your military over there mm -hmm. and you show that you're the strongest the most you know the most righteous country who do you think they want to be yeah they're gonna come here because because you planted your flags over there and said hey we're here we're the best all right so now i'm gonna go to your country and i'm gonna be the be, best i want to be the best with you guys so duh like i don't understand why are americans so blind to that like if you go to your neighbor's house and plant your flag and say my house is better believe me i'll be going to your house on christmas i'll exactly. be going to your house on thanksgiving exactly duh leave other countries alone <laughs> <laughs> and educate yourself research read and if this caravan does come up here help them out yes have a little mercy have a little humility you wanted me to teach you, right? Tomando Remy. Exacto. Y hablando español. Okay, hablando español. Um, how do you say?
Watch. Watch. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, we, have nev- we haven't said this one yet. This is, this is one that everybody should be... Uh, mm-hmm. This is actually really good. All right. Watch. So we're not saying watch like watchtower, like watching over the horizon. No, no. <laughs> we're saying watch like a clock. Yes. Right? Like, t- like a telling clock. time. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So watch. This is one that all you... All my fellow Americans listening to me here on this podcast, on the Cortez NYC Livestream Podcast, should know this word. So watch is reloj. Yes. Mm-hmm. When I say the word, I don't even know where that word comes from. Reloj. Because I never even thought about what is it. Yeah, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Like reloj. But reloj is clock, mm-hmm. right? It's, yeah. Because it, it's not really watch, it's clock. Because you have reloj. Yeah. A watch is a, like your wristwatch. Mm-hmm. But a clock is on the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, reloj. But it's all in Spanish, reloj. reloj. But I bet you there's another one and we don't know it. Most likely, yeah. Right. Um, and what about time? Time is tiempo. Tiempo. So time is tiempo and watch or clock is reloj. Yes. Um, how do you say... Yes. caravan no the name of of Dali's <laughs> piece was persistence how do you say persistence memory of persistence uh the persistence of memory is like the persistence of memory persistence in spanish yeah do you know it yeah Shit, i never i've never had to say persistence but i'm gonna take a guess persistence is persistencia how do you know? Because I'm awesome. <laughs> really? Persi- persistencia. Yes. La persistencia de memoria. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, how do you say memori- memory? But memoria. So the persistence of memory is la... La persistencia de la memoria. La persistencia de la memoria. Mm. All right, I'm going to have to confess something to you guys out there. What? All you listeners, we're on episode 54 and I have to confess this. What? I'm bilingual. <laughs> no, um, no, I, no, I don't know a lot of words. I'm taking guesses at a lot of and words. You, and you get it. I nail them because Why? I think the secret to it is um, I understand the... First of all, I understand the, the vowels. Mm-hmm. The I, I, I'm perfectly fluid in converting... English vowels to Spanish vowels. Mm. So when I when I think of how it's spelled, yeah, I can convert it and then I can say it, and hopefully it's the same word, yeah, but with the different vowels sounds. Mm-hmm. But then also, there are some um, suffixes and prefixes to words that I can guess, mm-hmm. that I know and I can because guess. Because you know it from other words? From other words, and I can associate it and say, by association, it right. must be this word. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for, I think we're here on episode 54, and if you guys have been following us this, this far and you've been listening to every single episode, like I know all of you have, mm-hmm. um, you know, in learning Spanish, hablando español, you will begin to develop that skill. Yeah. And um, and I think it, that's when you make a breakthrough. Also in English, and you're learning English, that's when you make that breakthrough to bilingualism. Is when you when you crack the code of the vowels, mm-hmm. how to how to translate the vowels yeah. sounds, 
and then also the prefix the prefixes and suffixes once you understand those things it's very easy to start to um build words in mm -hmm. your mind yeah and then when somebody hits you with a word or you're or you're forced to say a word you can figure it out um true so then now yes how do you say uh oh 31 <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> give me some easy one 31 yeah 31 oh good um how do you say <laughs> association association uh Association is a association. Yes. Asosa, asociación. Yes. Okay, gotcha. How do you say um, caravan? That one I don't know. That's why I threw it out there. Caravan. How do you say caravan? Caravan. Caravana. Ca what? Caravana. Caravana. Okay. Una caravana. Una caravana. What is is caravan used the way that it's being used? in these current uh news cycles no because caravana? i mean you could but when i've heard caravana is more like you know when you have like festivals or politicals um when, when politics go to the streets and they're in like in a car and they're like talking to i don't know if they they don't do that here i think but back in puerto rico politicians will go to the streets and they will go through your neighborhood and they will be talking and speaking loud with loudspeakers and everything okay. to get votes. And we'll say that's a caravana. Como like, gotcha. like um, almost like a, like a parade. Right. When in a parade, you have those cars that are very decorated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what we call a caravana. Okay. How do you say um, migrant? Migrant? Um... Bueno, immigrante is an immigrant. Yeah. Is there a difference between immigrante y migrant? Yeah. So how do you say migrant? Migrante. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that big, but I fell whatever. for that one. Migrante, okay. Yes. Um, how do you say refugee? Refugee. Uh, man, you said this one and I already. Refu refugio. Refugee. Refugio is. Refuge. Damn. Uh, refugee is, uh, I don't know. But it's near. Refugiado. Refugiado. Mm -hmm. Refugiado. Okay. Refugiado. And how do you say asylum? Asylum. A asilo? Asilo or refugio. Asilo or refugio. All right, guys. Gracias, Carla, por enseñarme mucho el español. De nada. Estoy hablando muy bien ahora. Sí, ahora sí habla bien. Uf. Finalmente. Tomó cinco años. <laughs> All right, another episode in the bag, Carla. Yes. Another bilingual caravan speaking episode in the bag. Listen, if you guys out there are part of the caravan, you, there's a lot of people really out there. Think? There's a lot of people out there. Yeah. One of them, and we have listeners from down in Latin America. Yeah, it's true, it's true. So if one of you listeners out there is part of the caravan coming up, yes. if you happen to be a bilingual, exactly. if you, maybe you were uh, born in Honduras or something, and, and or you were El Salvador, or in Salvador, and you're like, you know, bilingual, and you're like, I always wanted to come to the United States, and you're part of the caravan, yeah, and you're listening to this podcast, believe us that we're here for you. Shout us out. And, uh, shout us out. No, but, um, but keep the faith, man. All right. Yeah. And uh, see you guys next episode.